0: You are now listening to the December 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk.
1: Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time.
2: Welcome to Walking Our Talk. I'm Alan Heller. I have my wife, Polly, here. Hello. And we're going to be walking together through seeing God's purpose in my problems. This is an article I saw by Rick Warren. I really appreciate Rick because he's biblical. He's usually funny as well as very practical in terms of, and he gives statements like these. God uses problems to direct me, to inspect me, to correct me. To protect me (laughs) and to perfect me.
1: Oh, wow. That's very illiterate. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I think uh, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you have experienced a problem? Here's what um, the message says. Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process. The glory just around the corner. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. He takes no pleasure in making life hard, in throwing roadblocks in the way. Lamentations 3, 33 says. And then in James, of course, we read this, that, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect or complete result, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. So God directs us through problems. A person may plan his own journey, but the Lord directs his steps. Sometimes it takes painful experiences to make us change our ways, Proverbs twenty thirty says. So I have thought about my life, and I have directed my feet back to your written instructions, Psalm 119.59 says. And I am glad not because it hurt you, but because the pain turns you to God, Second Corinthians 7.9.
1: You know, I was just thinking I got this sort of mental image of a person who says, I'm a mountain climber. I have my hiking boots. I have my axe. I have my ropes. I have my carabiners. I have everything that I need to climb mountains. I have my backpack and my freeze-dried food and my thermal blanket. I have all of this equipment to climb a mountain. And now I'm just going to sit here and think about Climbing mountains. Oh, I'm going to look at all my equipment, what good equipment I have. But if you never really get out there and climb a mountain and use that equipment. You're not
2: really a mountain. (laughs) mountain. No. So God uses problems to direct us. Have you ever had something go on in your life that you thought you were doing one thing and God said, nope, you're going to do something else and you got frustrated with it? you know, we've had many times in our lives where we've had, uh, as Yogi Berra said, if there's a fork in the road, take Thank it. it. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are all kinds of illustrations of how God directs us through a problem we're having. It might be a relational problem. It might be a medical problem. Uh, there are all kinds of things that God uses to direct us in the problems that we face. He also uses problems to inspect us. The Lord searches our hearts and examines our deepest motives so he can give to each person his right reward according to his deeds, how he has lived, Jeremiah 17.10. So he searches, he examines, and uh, you know he inspects us. You, God, inspect them every morning and test them every minute. Job 7:18 Humans are satisfied with whatever looks good, but God probes for what is good. Proverbs 16:2 in the message. God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. I think he's talking about the children of Israel. And he humbled you to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands, Deuteronomy 8.2. So many times he inspects us through the trials we go through and see, you know, somebody, uh, a psychologist from another generation, Henry Brandt, used to say, yeah, that's stirring up my joy. <laughs> so, you know, whatever stirs you up, whatever spills out, that's what you're made of.
1: Well. I think again about you know that mountain climber illustration. So, let's say I'm a mountain climber and I put on my boots and my backpack and my have all my equipment and everything and I decide I'm going to go for a walk around the block and never have to get out that equipment. And so, well, all right, well I'm going to climb a hill. And so I climb the hill, but I still don't need that equipment. So, all right, I am actually going to climb a mountain, and I start climbing a mountain, and, oh, now I'm encountering some sheer cliffs. Oh, and now I need to get out my axe to climb up here, or I have to use my ropes, and I actually have to use this equipment in order to climb this mountain. You don't know what your equipment can do for you mm-hmm. until you're actually faced with <laughs> the kind of situation that that equipment is designed for. Right.
2: So I think of Andre Crouch a uh, uh, generation ago used to saying, <laughs> I, I, if I never had a problem, I would never know that God could solve them. That's right. And so until we're met with a bigger problem than we can take care of, uh, we don't know how much God wants to provide and, and help us, but he, he inspects, and you know there used to be a saying, you uh, inspect what you expect, and God inspects us uh, and sees what's in us by the trials that he gives us. Number three is God uses problems to correct me. God corrects all of his children, and if he doesn't correct you, then you don't really belong to him. God corrects us for our own good because He wants us to be holy as He is holy. Hebrews twelve, eight through ten. Consider yourself fortunate. God all powerful chooses to correct you, Job five, seventeen. And lastly, God teaches people through suffering and uses distress to open their eyes, Job thirty six, fifteen. And certainly Job could relate to having a bunch of problems.
1: Well, that's really true as members of a, of a grief group having lost our own son to cancer and sharing the lives and the grief of other people who have lost husbands and wives and children and parents to accidents and sudden death or lingering illnesses we've walked through those kinds of, of heart-wrenching situations with a lot of people, which requires being able to listen to people and being able to pray with people and get into that place of extreme sadness with them and help them to experience the comfort and the presence of God.
2: But he uses it to correct us. How does he use it to correct us?
1: Well, sometimes we end up in problems of our own doing. Mm. We've spent too much money without thought for how much money we actually have, or how much is coming in, or we expected a certain amount of money to be coming in and then we lost the position that provided our paycheck. And now what do we do? Are we going to um, rely on money and having the right amount of money to provide for us? Or are we going to trust that God is our provider? Are we going to, to give up the pride that comes from knowing that I can provide for myself? I have the capacity to make all of this money. Or am I going to confess to God, wow, my pride got in the way here. Mm. I thought that I was capable of handling all this, but really, God, you are the provider. Right. So
2: there are issues that we put ourselves into where he corrects us, and there are also things that just happen because we live in a fallen world, and he even uses that to purify our motives and correct us. And the question is, how are we going to react? Are we going to respond to him, or are we going to react and push away? Fourthly, God uses problems to protect me. God will save you from hidden traps, Psalm 91.3. We probably don't know how many traps God has saved us from. Mm-hmm. God has led you away from danger, giving you freedom, Job 36.16. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong, 1 Peter 3.17. Since the Lord is directing your steps... Why try to understand everything that happens along the way? Proverbs twenty, twenty four. So since the Lord is directing your steps, so he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. So if the God of the universe is directing my steps, why am I questioning? Right. Well especially we think God is good when God blesses us in the way and everything we is going think. our
1: way. Yes, <laughs> it should.
2: And so that is the American way. If it's going good, then we're good. If it's going well, bad, then we're bad.
1: So we are in ministry and have been in ministry our entire marriage. And so you would think maybe as a lay person would look at our lives and think, well. They're ministers of the gospel, or they minister um, to other people by leading Bible studies and having small groups or counseling people, whatever it is that we do. Um, so we are always walking in the will of God or something like that. But we encountered a situation a number of years ago where we believed that God was dealing us or leading us to another city. In another state, we packed up our house in anticipation of moving to this other place. And we couldn't understand why nobody was renting our house. Like we we had let people know that we were going to be moving. We sold things. And then that whole situation fell through. The other ministry opportunity didn't happen we didn't move we didn't go there we had already kind of shut the door on some things here where we were and now we were left hanging what do we do now god we were all set Mm -hmm. to go someplace else and now we're not what do we do now so we had to kind of Regroup. Regroup. Wait on the Lord. Ask God, what is it that you have for us now? And what
2: was your blood pressure like then, honey?
1: (laughs) I don't know. I was (laughs) a lot younger, (laughs) (laughs) I was more resilient. But I was anxious. I was worried. I was questioning. So it does cause us to have to go back to God and say, okay, God. what is it? I mean, sometimes we want to know why God, why, why is this happening to me? And it's not so much about why. Sometimes looking back, we can look back and say, oh, wow, that whole situation would have been really disastrous for us. Had we gone through with it, had we gone there, that would not have worked out well for us. God was really being gracious in not allowing us to go there and keeping us here and opening up other doors of ministry opportunity for us right here where we were.
2: So God uses problems to direct us, to inspect us, to correct us, to protect us. Sometimes we don't even know that he's protecting us from a bad decision that we thought was good. But he sees the whole picture. And then God uses problems to perfect me. Um, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who calls you to share his eternal glory in union with Christ, will himself perfect you and give you firmness, strength, and a sure foundation, 1 Peter 5.10, sureness, strength, and a firm foundation. But after you have suffered a little while, again, that's not part of the American way. Everything is supposed to be smooth in Disneyland, and we get everything we want. And that's how we become glorious. (laughs) (laughs) So he's perfecting us. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. This is Romans 5, 3 through 4. For we know that they are good for us. And just getting a mindset that problems are good for us, I I just think that's a very difficult thing because we're always looking at what the perfect is, and and that's what we're striving for. And yet, in order to get to the perfect, you have to go through a lot of failure. They help us learn to be patient, and patience develops strength of character in us and helps us trust God more each time we use it, Romans 5, 3 through 4. And I, I think... What happens in our Christian life is as we, we mature because we've gone through things that we've messed up and we've met, had bad experiences. And, and so when we suffer for a while, we know after a while that, oh, God's perfecting me, even though I don't like it, it doesn't feel good. But I've seen God change me into his likeness more of the time. When I go through hard times, it's not the easy times. It's the times of failure that actually produce the gold in people and in – I mean, you think about Edison trying to do the light bulb. I mean, most things that are – uh have been discovered they've been discovered by mistake and nobody ever knew that oh (laughs) this this happens when you do that you know (laughs) i think the post-it note was 3m was really discouraged because this guy made this note that you could just it would fall off after a while and yet uh post-it notes are they're just a a mainstream in american life where would
1: i be without my post-it notes Yeah, I realize that in this scripture, the kinds of sufferings and trials that the Apostle Paul is talking about are of a magnitude that is far greater than anything that we have ever experienced here. We have not suffered for our faith. We have not been thrown into jail for believing in Christ. Uh, We've not been beaten for preaching the gospel. That is so much greater of a trial than anything that we have experienced. But the principles are still the same. We need to just trust that God has something greater for us, no matter what we're going through.
2: That's not the easiest thing to do. We have to learn that by faith. And uh, many times God puts us through things that, we never expected. Certainly when we found out that our son had colorectal cancer at 32 years old, he was single. He was actually on his way to go to Iraq to serve with the National Guard. It was just a devastating experience that we didn't sign up for. And, but what do you do? I mean, you choose to draw upon all the background that you have in your heritage with God And all those quiet times and all that time in the Word and all those times of going through difficult situations where God came through, even though right now in the midst of that trial we were devastated and went through all kinds of difficulties in our marriage, in our personal life, depression, sleeplessness, um, just a very difficult time that was— That's the closest thing we can relate to suffering, I think.
1: Well, that's true. And yet, during that time, I had a very distinct sense of God's presence, of his comforting me and carrying me through my grief after Josh died and my ability to just be there with him on a daily basis while he was going through his pain and the suffering of that awful disease.
2: So allow God to direct and perfect you, and I'll leave you with this one more time. In James it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be whole or complete, lacking in nothing. So as the Lord perfects you and you become more like him, we pray that you'll walk your talk. This is Alan Heller with Paulie. And if you want to get in touch with us, just uh, go to alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K.org. Or go to our website. We have lots of resources, walkandtalk.org. And uh, we'll see you next time as we walk our talk.
1: This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
3: some mercy
0: Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary, PHX, in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Joy Has a Name. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
4: Luke chapter 2, verse 8, beginning there, it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. Would you say that with me? A great joy. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For to you, here's the joy, for to you this day in the city of David... As Savior is born, and here is who Joy is—who is, who is Christ the Lord. Joy has a name. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased." You know, you just can't separate joy when you talk from the birth of Jesus. Think of how many Christmas carols singing about the birth of Jesus have the word of the phrases joy in them. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Jesus and joy always go together. He brings joy to the world. 700 years before Jesus was born, his birth announcement was given. Isn't that crazy? In Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to make your way there now, verse 6, we see the birth announcement of the Messiah. Seven centuries before he is born, God names him. Messiah is amazing that God does not give him just one name, he gives him five names in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And this is what the birth announcements declares. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called... Go ahead, read with me. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He says, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Jesus is declared to be fully God. The prophet Isaiah predicted that this child would be both human and divine. For unto you a child is born, a son is given, that's human, and he will be called mighty God. That's God. And so this Messiah who comes will be God and man. This amazing combination that I'm sorry, I can't explain, nobody can totally explain this. Theologians have talked about it for centuries, for thousands of years. But the Bible says that God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That's Jesus, full of grace and truth. Matthew's recollection of uh, the birth account of Jesus says that the angel came to Joseph and Joseph was concerned, you know, what do I do? This child isn't mine, Mary's pregnant. And you know, the vows that they took, they weren't married, but they were betrothed. And betrothal was considered legally binding and to get out of betrothal you had to get a divorce. During the betrothal period, though they were married, they didn't have sex. Okay? So that didn't come until the ultimate final part betrothal period, then they would have marriage and then they would go off and they would be married and, and set up their own household and, and start a family. So that hadn't happened. And so Joseph is saying, what do I do? I love Mary. I don't want to put her to shame. But, and I got to be careful because the penalty for committing adultery, fornication is death. I don't want that to happen to her. What am I going to do? And so in, in the night, he had a dream. Matthew 1, 20 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, who knows, God with us. You see, the child born of the Virgin Mary, the child conceived by the Holy Spirit is God with us. See how it all ties together? He's the mighty God. He's the child, the mighty God. He is God with us, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. But someone asks, and this is a great question, did Jesus ever say that he was God? Okay, you got me there. Jesus never used those words. He never said, I am God. He never said that. That would be a very quick answer to this whole issue. He doesn't say, I am God. But what Jesus does do is he very clearly communicates to his Jewish people that he is God. He spoke to them in a way that was absolutely clear so that they understood that he was declaring to be God. Now, we don't pick up on it unless we really know our Old Testament. And a lot of Christians really kind of put the Old Testament to one side because, hey, the New Testament is all about Jesus. The Old Testament, you know, is done. Don't do that, okay? The Old Testament you see in the light of the New Testament, you know, what throw away the Old Testament. Got to interpret it in the light of the new. So we don't all know these stories. If we knew, we would understand that Jesus, yes, he is God, and he said he was God. Not using those words, but he very clearly revealed to his people he was. How did he do that? What was the code he used? Kind of code to us. They knew it. Well, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Hold your place in Isaiah. In fact, I'm going to say right now, keep a marker all this time in Isaiah. And let's go back now to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3. Now, there are some Bible stories that aren't super familiar to us. Others are. There is a movie called The Exodus. And so a lot of us have gotten, you know, some Bible training watching that movie, you know. So we know our theology. But the story is that God is going to deliver, after 430 years of Egyptian bondage, God's going to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. Now, this is going to be the greatest single event in Israel's history ever. They will always look back to this event as the greatest act of God for them ever. They celebrate the Passover. That's all about this event. And so, this is the huge setup. And God says, I'm going to take my people out of Egypt. I'm going to do it with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I'm going to use science and wonders. And Pharaoh's going to let my people go. And Moses, you're the man. I'm going to use you. And Moses is like,
5: no, I'm not. I am not the man.
4: He had a healthy, he really did have a healthy view of himself. He realized, I am not equipped to do this. Hey, if you don't feel equipped to do what God asks you to do, you're in great company. Join the crowd, right? So he says, you know, I can't speak. Apparently, there's an inference there that he had a speech impediment of some kind. God says, don't worry, I'll put words in your mouth. I don't know what to say, but I can't talk. He says, I'll let Aaron do the talking for you. But, you know, and God took away all his excuses and he says, I'll take care of you. And then, you know, what happens is Moses says, there is something. God, they're probably gonna ask me who sent me. And what am I gonna say? They might ask me your name. What am I going to say? And so now we're picking up in Exodus chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's a strange name, isn't it, you guys? I am that I am. God said, Say to this people of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Listen now, this is my name. How long? Forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What does God say? His name is forever? I am. Who can forgive that? I forget names. How about you? And I think it's because over the years, there have been literally, I can say, tens of thousands of names that have, some people, they never forget a name. I'm good with faces, but with names, I'm sorry, Just, I'm not that great anymore. So I am, though, kind of easy to remember, isn't it? I am. So every little Jewish boy and girl growing up would be told this story and they would be told what God said his name was and how it was to be known forever. Well, Jesus refers to himself as the I am. And when he does that, he's claiming to be God. Now let's look at what Jesus says I'm multiple occasions he claimed this name for himself so let's go back now to the New Testament and look at John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders and they are not happy with him they're jealous of him they think he's claiming too much there's a whole lot of stuff going on and they want to kill him and they're just waiting for the right time the right excuse so Jesus is having this discussion with them Well, let's just start with uh, verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So these religious leaders thought that he was talking about suicide because in the Jewish thought, they believed that if you committed suicide, you would not go to, we'll say heaven, all right? So they thought because Jesus was saying, where I'm going, you can't come. Well, he's committing suicide, so we can't follow him there. And it says so in verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And Jesus responds. He said to them, you are from below. In other words, you are earthlings. You are earth dwellers. You grew up here. You were born here. You are from below. He says what? I am from where? Above. He's saying I had a pre-existence. I existed in heaven before I was here on this earth. You're from this earth. I'm from above. He says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Now look at verse 24. Look very carefully. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Listen. How many of Jesus is claiming to be the I am? In your Bible, if he, where it says, he said to them, I am he, how many of you have the word he italicized in your Bible? Okay, in some of the older translations, the word he, if it's italicized, means it's not there in the Greek text. It's placed there by translators to make sense of, and supposed to be in context, to make sense of of in English. So, uh, to the translators, it says, Before Abraham was, I am what? Right? You don't say, I am. Finish the sentence, please. And so they put he. The Greek says, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, not he, but that I am, you will die in your sins. You understand? Right here, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the I am. Is everybody clear with that? See, that was not lost on the religious leaders because when you go down to verse 59, check it out, verse 59, they believed that Jesus was blaspheming. In other words, claiming to be God in verse 59. It says, it says, they were going to stone him for they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did I say he went out of the temple? They got the impression he was saying he was God. Kill him. He's God. He's saying he's God. Now, if Jesus didn't want them to get that impression, that's the perfect time to say, uh, put the stones down, guys. You're misunderstanding. I never claim to be God. I'm not God. But does he do that? That's where you say no. Does he do that? No. He lets them believe the truth about him. I am God. And he does that other places in the New Testament. We won't look at all those places. But Jesus clearly claims to be God. So does he say, I am God? No. All he says is, I am the I am, which means he is what? God. He is God. And I want you to look at some other Old Testament passages that show us that Jesus is God. This is very important. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 43. Look at verse 10. Why am I talking about this? Why am I so passionate about this? You would consider yourself to be an evangelical. That is, we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. You believe that the Bible is literally true and the inspired Word of God. And there's some other things that, that. you would fit into the evangelical camp, right? But do you know that the stats are showing now that almost it's getting close to just under half of evangelicals don't believe that Jesus is God? Yes, that is insane. And I'll tell you why in a bit, but I just want you to see, first of all, that Jesus is God. It's also important because there are cults today that teach Jesus is not God. He was the first thing that God ever created. He's God's most majestic creation. He's the most powerful creation of God. But he's not God. And we know and we believe that that Jesus is God the Son. We believe that Trinity, the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible, but it's implied and it's clear that there is Trinity throughout the Scripture because the Spirit is called God, Father is called God, and Jesus is God. So, I mean, obviously... There's not one person that's Father, Son, and Spirit. Our one God is three persons, Trinity, okay? And that's maybe another topic we can look at sometime. But Jesus, he repeatedly claimed to be God. In Isaiah chapter 43, shows us something incredible. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He." Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no, what, Savior. So, God clearly saying, there's never been a God before me. There'll never be a God after me. I've always been. Basically, I am that I am, and I am the only Savior, right? Okay, you got it. Now look at chapter 45, Let's look at verse 15. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So the God of Israel, just like we read earlier, he's the Savior, the only true God. No one before him or after him. He's the only Savior. Here again, God is called the Savior in the Old Testament. Look at verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a what? Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So, do I have to recap again? Everybody gets it, right? God is the only Savior. God, the one and true God in the New Testament to 1 John. It's getting real close to the book of Revelation. At 1 John chapter 4, and look at verse 14. Before we go there, let me say that God says, I'm the only true God, and I'm the only Savior. Amen? We nailed that down. All right, now I want you to look at 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the what? What? savior of the world what does that mean about jesus jesus is god i'm and savior yes of course but the savior is the only true god this means that jesus is god the son jesus isn't the father it's clear here that jesus isn't the father the father sent jesus to be the savior so jesus is the the child who's the mighty god he's the god man who's come to earth to be the savior of the world How about that? Is that clear to everybody? Is that pretty clear? Okay, and that's important. Now, I want you to also look at what God declares about himself, Isaiah 44, 6. I'd like for us to read it together, and let's read it, whatever translation, it's okay. (laughs) Let's just read it aloud, okay? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So he says, I am the first and I am the last. Hold on to that. Look at Isaiah 48, verse 12. Hey, we can read this one together too. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I've called. I am he, I am the what? First and I am the last. Okay, got it. Now, you know what Revelation chapter one, verse eight says? records this, John has seen Jesus in a vision, he is so overwhelmed, he passes out. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell.'" So here you go. God, the only living, true God, twice in Isaiah says, I am the first and the last. And then Jesus says in Revelation 1, 8, I'm the first and the last. What does that mean? Jesus is God. You see, Jesus has the same titles as God, because he is God the Son. In fact, Jesus has the same attributes of God. Attributes of God, like he knows all things, has all power, has all wisdom, etc. Jesus, as you look at his life and ministry, he exercises all the attributes of God because he is God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's like I am talk, isn't it? The Almighty. So God says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Isaiah 44, I know we're going back to where we were but I didn't say anything then because I wanted to save it. I wanted to give you a surprise, all right? Early Christmas present, here you go. Those of you who are really perceptive, which is all of you guys, I want you to carefully read. You just read verse six all by yourself, and I'm gonna ask you if you see something really cool there, okay? And if you don't, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm gonna say, who sees something really cool, and you don't? But you're going to raise your hand anyway, and then you're going to leave convicted of being a liar. Okay, so there's no pressure that way, but I just want you to see, read it to yourself. Verse 6, 44, 6. I'm wondering if you see what I saw. I see two, two persons. Do you see two persons? I see, thus says the Lord. When Lord is capitalized, it's the name Yahweh, which is the sacred name of God in Scripture. So thus says Yahweh. The king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, who again, Lord Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. In the one God, there are two persons. You see that? There is Yahweh, the king of Israel, and there is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. There is the redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Do you see? One Two. How many of you understand that? You see that? Now, this is important. As we talk to people who don't believe in the Trinity and they don't believe that Jesus is God, do you understand the verses I've given to you? And then, of course, Jews believe the Holy Spirit is divine. And so, though the Bible in the Old Testament does not say the Trinity, it is there by implication, right? And we, by inference, and we understand there is a triune God. Everybody with me? How many think this is cool? I do. A little bit of theology never hurts us, does it? Now, Jesus is named back in Isaiah 9:6. He's called wonderful counselor, he's called mighty God. I want to tell you something about that title, that name Mighty God. It's El Elgibor, El Gabor, two words. El means God. Always, Elohim, all these words that start with L. Emmanuel, God with us. So, Gebor comes from Geber, which is a, the word for man. Still used in Hebrew that way, so, in modern Hebrew. So, we've got his name will be called Mighty God. It's literally Man God. Is that cool? You see, right there in his names, it shows us that. How do you become a man God? Well, there's a virgin birth that Isaiah talks about. There's a whole birth narrative that we have that explains how God, the mighty God, became human. And you know what? I'm so thankful that my Savior is God. How about you guys? And because he's God, he can be a Savior. I got to tell you this. This is super, super important. Jesus says, unless you believe that he is the I am, you'll die in your sins. I mean, it's not optional. If you want to be saved, you have to believe Jesus is God. Now, why is it important that our Savior be God? Quick thing to think about. When we sin, the sin offense against an eternal God. That means the sin is an eternal offense against God. And the wages of sin is eternal death. That all makes sense, right? So, how could my sin ever have been paid for by anybody but eternal God? An angel doesn't have life enough to pay for my eternal sin. Angels aren't eternal. Jesus, if he were a created being, wouldn't have life enough. He wouldn't have the currency, you might say, of eternality. Isn't that cool? I'm going to write that down. I'm taking notes of myself right now. He wouldn't have the weights to be able to pay for eternal sin. See, the Savior has to be eternal God is the everlasting father. Jesus is also a father in the sense that he's the father of a new race. What? A new race. Jesus is never referred to as a father while he's on earth. He is referred to as a father after his work of salvation is finished and he's in heaven. Why? Now look at Isaiah chapter 53. Right here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says that the Messiah will have children. Isaiah chapter 53, catch up with you guys. In chapter 53, it describes in depth the suffering, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah. I mean, down to details like he'll be put in a a rich man's tomb. That happened to Jesus, that he dies. It describes his, his torture and all. But then look at verse 10. Yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Let me just stop here. At this point, Isaiah 53 says the Messiah is dead. Because it says in verse 9, they put him in a rich man's grave. So he's dead, right? And he's paid for the sins of the world. It says he made an offering for guilt. But look, middle of verse 10, it implies a resurrection. Because it says, after he's dead, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make many, that's us, to be counted righteous or to be justified, and he will bear their iniquities. So it's talking that when Jesus dies, he will yet see the fruit of his labors. when he dies, he's going to see... His offspring, did you notice that? What do we call offspring? Children. I have offspring. And now my offspring are having offspring. Children are offspring. The Messiah has children. As a result of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and people putting their faith in him, he has children. Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about Jesus, how he came to this world, why God sent him the way he sent him. How Jesus tunes into us because he knows what it's like to suffer like we do. And with that being said, God says something to Jesus. And I want you to see verse 13. This is what Jesus says to God. Behold I and the children God has given me. Jesus says, behold I and the children God has given me. Jesus declares he has children, right? And it's as a result of the work of salvation that he did. So is he an eternal father? Yes. He's the everlasting father. He started this whole salvation thing, you know, and he finished it. And those who believe in him are also his children. So he is the everlasting father. Now, there's one more thing, though, about Jesus being the everlasting father that I don't want you to take a look at. And that is, we're just going all over the book, aren't we? I want you to go to the left to Psalm 103. Jesus is the everlasting father. How does a father act? How is, what's Jesus' heart toward us? Psalm 103, look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So, what does that mean? The word translated compassion means to bounce a child on your knee. In Hebrew. So read it that way now. Just as a father bounces his little one on his knee, so the Lord, what? Bounces you on his knee if you believe in him. That's what fear him means. Do you fear the Lord? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Then Jesus has that kind of compassion, that kind of relationship with you. Jesus loves you. And then it goes on to say, and I'll let you go. And then it goes on to say, for he knows our frame. He knows how you're built. He knows what you're made out of. He knows you. He remembers that we're just dust. Jesus knows you're not Superman or Superwoman. He knows it. He knows you're weak. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you struggle with. He knows what makes you depressed. He knows what makes you happy. He knows our frame. He understands you when you don't understand yourself. There are times when are going, why did I do that? I don't understand. Jesus says, I do. I know you, I love you. Jesus knows what makes you upset. He knows, he knows, but you know what? He also sees when you're just adoring him and you love him. And because he's God, he's worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our service, amen? And that's what we wanna do. Thank you, Lord, that you are the mighty God and you are our everlasting Father. We thank you. Through your name, Lord Jesus, and everybody said amen.
0: Coming up next is Understanding Israel.
6: Hello everyone, and welcome to another program in our series, Understanding Israel. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. In the last couple of weeks, we looked at Israel's history and the nation that they have become, and a couple of the prophetic things that are occurring in present-day Israel. Today, we will be studying Israel's future and her vital role in the end times scenario. God had a lot to say about Israel's future in the Old Testament, and there are references about Israel in the New Testament as well. So let's open up our Bibles and read a few of them. First, let's start in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. In chapter 38, God describes the future invasion of Israel. In verses 1 through 6, we read And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them welding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, Beth Togarma, from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Now let's stop here for a moment and figure out who and where all these places are. First, Gog is the leader of the invading coalition. Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal are ancient names for cities that are now located in Russia. Persia is also known as Iran and the territory of Ethiopia in ancient times covered the present-day Sudan, as well as the Ethiopia we know today. Put is now known as Libya, and Gomer is believed to be the southern part of Europe, and Beth Togarma is present-day Turkey. This coalition is actually in existence today. Russia and Iran have a mutual business pact with each other as well as with Turkey. Russia has troops in Libya and appears to be taking control of that area, and Turkey has a mutual business pact with Sudan. Now we'll continue to read what God said to Ezekiel, beginning with verse 8. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter days you will come into the land that is restored from the sword." whose inhabitants have been gathered from the many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. Again, let's stop for a moment and consider what we just read. The mountains of Israel are generally known as the mountains up in the Golan Heights area in northern Israel. This area comes right up to the border with Syria. Israel's defense force, also known as the IDF, have patrols stationed along that border on Israel's side. And guess who has patrols on the Syrian side? It's not the Syrians, it's the Russians. Let's continue to read what God says about Gog, the leader of this coalition beginning with verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, It will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan, and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, To turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods? to capture great spoil. Again, let's pause here a moment. Sheba and Dedan are the ancient names of Saudi Arabia and the countries on the peninsula like Yemen, United Arabs, and etc. Tarshish is the ancient name for the southern part of Spain, and the phrase with all its villages, scholars believe, is the rest of the countries in Europe which could include the United States of America, because the early settlements came from the European countries. It also appears that these countries will protest the invasion, but will not come to help Israel. But God will be there for them. Let's continue in verse 14, where God is still speaking. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, Will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, and a mighty army, and you shall come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So we know that there will be an invasion into Israel, but we do not know when that will be, if it will be before the beginning of the tribulation or it begins the tribulation. There are scholars and pastors who believe that after this invasion, with the world being in turmoil, that the Antichrist will make his appearance and bring peace to the world. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Let no one in any way deceive you, For it, meaning the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. In regard to this passage, Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel Kaneohe, Hawaii states, the Antichrist will bring peace to the Middle East, and it will be the seven-year peace agreement, that is, the seven-year tribulation. And in the midst of the tribulation, after three and a half years, the Antichrist, in the newly rebuilt temple, which some scholars believe is part of the peace agreement that the Jews will be allowed to rebuild their temple, the Antichrist is going to demand to be worshipped as God, and he will commit an abomination which some Bible scholars believe is the sacrificing of an unclean animal. The Jews will then realize that this is not their Messiah and flee. Okay, let's stop right there and turn to Revelation chapter 12. This chapter refers to the woman being Israel. The child she is carrying refers to Jesus, who comes from the lineage of the house of David, and, as Matthew describes in chapter 1, a descendant of Adam. Satan is there who moved Herod to destroy all the little male children and to try to destroy God's plan of salvation. Jesus lived, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven. As far as the Jews are concerned, it stops right there. But once they realize the man whom they thought was their Messiah was not their Messiah, they run away from their land as we read in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Pastor J.D. continues, And that is what will bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus the Christ, their Messiah. The last three and a half years is when the Jews will be persecuted like never before and flee to an area most scholars believe is Petra, in modern-day Jordan, or God will protect the Jews from the Antichrist who wants to destroy them. Still in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, let's skip to verse 13 and read. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time, from the presence of the serpent and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth here the two wings of the great eagle some scholars believe are possibly airplanes that take the Jews into the wilderness or petra god provides again for his children the Jews, while they are in the wilderness for the second time as a nation. It is believed that water like a river are many armies sent against the fleeing Jews, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river suggests a mighty earthquake that swallows up the armies. Finally, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 12. God is speaking, and in verse 9 we read, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day There will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of hadad Riman, in the plain of Megiddo. This is the repentance which leads to the salvation of the Jews. So let's put this all together. There will be an invasion from the north, and there will be chaos all over the Middle East. A man with a plan for peace will step in, and the peace agreement will be for seven years. And many scholars seem to think he will allow the Jews to build their third temple. After three and a half years, this man of lawlessness will do something abominable, and the Jews will realize he is not the long-awaited Messiah and flee. God and God alone will take care of them in their place of refuge over the next three and a half years. And when Jesus comes back to earth, the Jews will look to him, whom they have rejected and crucified, and they will mourn, and that is the repentance that leads to their salvation. We covered a lot in looking at Israel's future, also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. But in the end, there will be salvation for the children of Israel. Until next time, God bless you all, and goodbye.
0: We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.